Okay, welcome everybody to Understanding Climate Finance. My name is Fahim Narali, and I'm the Climate Finance Trade Commissioner based out of Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm joined by my colleague, Rachel Soares. Uh, Rachel, you want to say hi? Hi, everyone. Nice to be back. Uh, Rachel, as you know, is the Climate Finance Trade Commissioner based out of London. Um, and us, along with two of our other colleagues, our two other climate finance trade commissioners, really look at supporting how we can uh, get Canadian industry in front of the MDBs and other investors um, for their climate projects. Today is actually a really special episode. As you all know, uh, in November was COP26, and we are really pleased that we could be joined by um, Ambassador Patricia Fuller. Um, Ambassador Fuller is the climate change uh, ambassador for Canada. Um, she holds a Bachelor of Arts in Economic and Political Studies from Queen's University and Master of Science from the London School of Economics. Um, ambassador Fuller has a really impressive career. She's been at Foreign uh, Affairs and International Trade Canada um, and served as the Deputy Director for Trade Remedies from 97 to 99. Um, chief economist. I mean, I'm sort of skipping through all of all of her credentials because they're they're very impressive. Um, from 2004 to 2007, she was uh, ambassador of Canada to Uruguay and then ambassador to Chile from 2012 to 2015. Uh, she's also worked in Mexico and in Guatemala, and so she's been a really good resource for me personally as I'm working in Latin America and the Caribbean and been really supportive. Um, so. With that, I wanted to get right into it with Ambassador Fuller. First of all, thank you, Ambassador Fuller, for, for joining us today um, and uh, for being a part of this podcast. I know this is the second time we've been on the podcast. The first time we was with the Climate Finance Roundtable we held in May, and you had asked some really good questions and, and made some really good insights around climate policy. Um, and I think um, your insights into COP and how the that affects climate finance is really going to help uh, our listeners. So thank you so much for joining. It's a pleasure to be here, Fahim. I thought I was just sort of jump into it. I know you went to COP, um, and I just wanted to get your impressions of of COP twenty six, and if we you feel like we're on a strong path to one point five or two degrees. Sure, and thanks again for the invitation to be on on your great podcast. I'm uh, very pleased that you're doing these. So I think a lot of progress was made at Glasgow in COP26 and also in the lead up to COP26. And it's important to remember that these big international events uh, drive governments to make new commitments uh, in, in, the, in the lead up as well as during the meeting. So we saw the UK as COP president doing a lot of work globally, uh, diplomatically, with support from, from many like-minded countries to persuade uh, the big emitters to revise their targets, to be more in line with that 1.5 degree goal that you mentioned. Uh, so we saw a number of important new commitments um, from key countries. Uh, uh, in the lead up and at COP, uh, for example, uh, we saw India come with a new target, South Africa came with a new target. So those were very positive steps forward. Um, but there were certainly some major emitters that did not come with new targets or, or, or didn't come with ones that were aligned with where we need to go to. So there is still an ambition gap. 
So in short, a lot of progress made, but a lot, a lot more work to do. And that's why the, the Glasgow Climate Compact, uh, and this is very important, does state that parties are to strengthen uh, their NDCs to, to, to look at them, uh, revisit them as the language says, and strengthen them uh, where needed by the end of, of next year. So that is, uh, um, that's, a, that's a key outcome of, of COP to have that commitment there. And are you optimistic that in the next COP the, they'll come back with strengthened NDCs and some of these countries that didn't quite have the strong enough NDCs, what can we do to, to help them get those NDCs that we, that we would like to see to affect climate change? Hmm. Well, um, I think what we learned in Glasgow is that the, the international pressure really does make a difference. And, and we saw uh, the, a very significant presence of, of observers, uh, members of civil society. We also saw uh, the importance of, of the business sector there, in some cases, pressing their, their governments to, to uh, um, be uh, more flexible in terms of uh, not necessarily the targets, but some of the other outcomes of, of COP, for example, the, the Article 6 outcome on emissions trading. Mm-hmm. So I think um, uh, there's grounds for optimism, but we need to keep up that pressure. And, uh, and, and it's also about helping countries to make these moves. So I think, you know, in the case of South Africa, we saw uh, countries coming together to make commitments around how, how South Africa can be supported to do the transition away from coal. So I think that kind of approach is is something we'll need to think about uh, in some other instances as well. Um, so so yes, I'm I'm optimistic that we'll get um, more commitments to bring us closer into line for the 1.5 degrees for for the next COP. Great. I think um, that's a, a great segue, Ambassador Fuller, into. Uh, something that probably a lot of our listeners would be interested in better understanding, and and that's um, how Canada played a, a leading role in, in multiple different parts of, of COP26, and and what Canada's participation um, might have uh, shown for for uh, our Canadian business back at home or or the civil society, and 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 what those commitments might look like. Sure, I I would. I think focus my my comments on three areas. Um, one is around what I would call policy leadership, and that means uh, bringing new measures to meet our own target. Because as was said frequently at Glasgow, this needs to not just be about targets; it needs to be about implementation. So Canada came with new uh, policy measures, in per- particular with respect to reducing emissions from oil and gas. Uh, as well as getting to a, a 100% clean electricity grid. So those, those attracted attention. And, and, and certainly as an oil and gas producing economy, countries that are looking to Canada to see leadership around how we address emissions in that sector, I think those, those um, announcements were, were very important, as well as referencing our existing uh, policy measures, and in particular carbon pricing, where where the Prime Minister uh, hosted a special event uh, to press uh, for greater coverage of carbon pricing globally as the most effective measure to reduce emissions. Um, And then secondly, 
uh, apart from the outcomes of for Glasgow that I referenced in terms of the 1.5 degree and the the uh, the NDCs or targets that 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 are are sort of uh, reported to the the uh, the UN. Uh, there were also a number of alliances uh, that were formed and, and announcements that were made around international collaborations to do specific things that do also accelerate ambition around uh, climate change mitigation as, as well as adaptation. So uh, Canada uh, was part of a number of those. Um, perhaps I'll mention just three. Uh, there was the Global Methane Pledge, which committed to a, a global reduction in methane of 30 percent by 2030. And Canada was uh, one of the, the signatories to that pledge. Uh, there was also a statement which is uh, important with respect to, to international financing uh, around uh, international support for fossil fuels. And uh, Canada joined with other um, countries to commit to ending international support for fossil fuel uh, uh, unabated. It, it states, you know, unabated fossil fuels, meaning you know, fossil fuels that don't uh, um, uh, capture uh, emissions, and uh, to do so by the end of of next year, by the end of 2022. So um, Canada joining that. Uh, was uh, significant and, and actually led a number of other countries to to join after we had announced um, our our commitment to that pledge. And uh, there were also commitments around uh, deforestation and stopping deforestation. And uh, that had been a significant focus for the UK presidency and Canada joined the commitments around ending deforestation. And then the third area is uh, and very relevant to your podcast is uh, around climate finance and Canada's own climate finance. And we had announced earlier in the year our commitment to double our climate finance for developing countries to uh, to $5.3 billion. And at COP26, we announced a number of details around that new commitment. Uh, specifically, we announced that $1 billion of that uh, amount will be for accelerating transition away from coal in developing countries and supporting clean energy transition. And we also announced that at least 40% of our overall climate finance will be dedicated to adaptation because developing countries have made clear that adaptation is a critical priority for them and that they want to see more climate fi finance flowing into adaptation to climate change. Uh, we also committed that one billion of, of our amount will be for nature-based solutions, uh, including with biodiversity benefits. So that's really uh, tapping into this whole recognition that nature plays a huge role in, in, in mitigating climate change and in building our resilience to climate change. So we need to invest in, in conservation and protection of nature and, and nature-based solutions or you know, solutions which, uh, um, which absorb uh, carbon emissions or, for example, build resilience around coastlines by restoring uh, um, natural uh, ecosystems that uh, that are resilient to storm surges, those kinds of things. So that's a, a very exciting area. 
and then and then finally we committed to continue our our uh, our work on advancing gender equality as part of our climate finance and to ensure that 80 percent of our climate finance will bring gender equality outcomes so uh those were, i think would would sum up some of the key uh key uh areas of leadership that uh that Canada demonstrated at COP26. I observed reading the different articles and watching what I could on co- about COP26 that nature played a significant role. And I saw a lot of countries, in, at least Latin America and Caribbean, and in Africa, um, really getting behind these nature-based solutions. Um, and then around the adaptation piece, I think, as you know, countries have been asking for adaptation finance for a while. And it, hasn't been quite investable um, for the, at least the private sector to come in around adaptation. Um, and I certainly hope that some of the instruments such as blended finance and others can can encourage private sector to come in. But do you feel um, that on the adaptation finance piece that we can make a significant mark with, with the commitments that have been made? I think you make a good point that we're adaptation can be investable there is an opportunity to support adaptation with with tools other than grants so loans or equity or other other types of structures which obviously make climate finance go farther and so where that is possible uh, we should absolutely do so um, we have heard from developing countries that that much more of the funding does need need to flow in the form of of, of grants but um, there are certainly examples where adaptation projects are financed with, with loans or, or other types of uh, non-grant instruments, particularly in the area of infrastructure where you know, infrastructure can uh, often be financed uh, uh, through MDBs or other or GFIs and, and can bring a, a return to, to, uh, um, to private sector investors that may be part of those projects. Um, you know, one area uh, where I know Canada played a significant role is in their partnership with Germany to create this plan for a hundred billion. You know, for the countries to to honor their hundred billion dollar commitment. Is is there anything that you can share on on that collaboration? Yes, and and I think that was um, uh, an area where Canada made an important contribution in the lead up to COP. Uh, it was kind of seen as a um, you know a, 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 a necessary condition for success at COP to have in place uh, what was called a delivery plan for developed countries to deliver on their commitment to provide um, 100 billion in climate finance annually to developing countries or to to mobilize that amount. So uh, Canada co-led that work with Germany and that plan provides a a projection of uh, commitments uh, which are in place already. So this is a first that we have a forward looking plan based on on actual commitments that shows how uh, climate finance will evolve. And it does show that that $100 billion figure uh, will be uh, attained. Um, and, you know, some disappointment that it wasn't atta- attained in 2020, but it, it certainly will be uh, attained uh, uh, according to the plan in, in um, uh, uh, 2023 uh, and, and 2024. So certainly before the, the 2025 
uh, time frame. So, um, so that was important for unlocking uh, um, the discussions around ambition because developing countries have have always made the point that while um, they're committed to move on on reducing emissions, that they need support to do so, and they need developed countries to deliver on on the commitments uh, around uh, um, climate finance. Yeah, yeah, and I think that was expressed even in in the. In the final statement, we're saying there's with deep regret that this commitment hasn't been uh, fulfilled yet. But you know, looking forward, um, looking at how climate finance will be deployed, what uh, are the intermediaries and mechanisms that will be used to deploy climate finance um, going forward? Well, uh, in in Canada's case, I think we will continue to work with. The multilateral institutions as an important partner while also uh, impl implementing some of our assistance through bilateral channels. Um, so for example, for the uh, commitment to clean energy transition, that will be implemented through the, um, the climate investment funds at the World Bank, the SIF. The details of the mechanisms uh, is what we're in the process of, of defining now. So that more details will, will be available on that as we as we announce specific funding initiatives. I think that's really helpful because we have over the past couple of, of questions back and forth discussed a, you know a lot about the role that governments can play when it comes to climate financing and what their commitments look like and and what future commitments hopefully will look like and and the impact on developing countries as well. And so it would be interesting to, to better understand, and you have touched on this a little bit already, Ambassador Fuller, but um, how governments can play a role to encourage the private sector to take a leading role when it comes to, to climate investing. Fahim had mentioned blended finance. Are we really looking to use um, public funds to help catalyze uh, the private sector and, and how far can we move it? Yes, and then there was quite a lot of discussion at COP26 around the importance of, of blended finance uh, as, a, as a mechanism to mobilize more private sector investment into climate change mitigation and, and adaptation as well. And uh, Canada's got a long history of, of working uh, through those types of mechanisms in our climate finance uh, uh, with, with uh, all of the multilateral development banks. So I do see that kind of approach continuing and becoming probably uh, more important going forward uh, because, um, you know, we were referencing the $100 billion de delivery plan and where, where we fell short in terms of the breakdown of, of where that the, the amounts up to, to, uh, up to now have met expectations, it's, it is in the area of mobilization of private sector finance where we do see a shortfall relative to what we had expected when we made that commitment to mobilizing $100 billion. So, so that, you know, that, that process of, of uh, partnering and, and uh, using tools like, like blended finance to uh, use public monies, those scarce public dollars to bring larger amounts of, of private finance those, those frankly have not materialized to the extent that they need to. So 
I think you know there was there was discussion in COP around why that is and how you know, it does come down in in to a number of factors I think but 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 um, part of it is is risk appetite part of it is what we frequently hear the lack of of uh, investable projects and part of it is around policy frameworks um, that clearly uh, even with a public sector partner. A private investor is not going to invest where they see policy risk, and so um, things like policies around um, around electricity markets and and uh, renewable energy, for example, have to be such that uh, uh, private investment is 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 attracted and and. That blended finance can help to reduce the the risk that a private investor faces, but it can't uh, reduce that risk enough if if there's significant barriers in terms of regulatory uh, factors or, or or policy uncertainty. So, you know, I think we've seen regular we've seen what can happen in in, in environments where where policies are 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 welcoming for investment certainly in the area of renewable energy um it can absolutely take off and we've also seen where it can slow when those policies are not um, are, are not uh favorable to to developing the market for for renewable energy as one example you had um actually mentioned um uh, the sif program and the self one of the things that sort of came out of COP was this capital market mechanism. And it's unique in a sense that it's leveraging its balance sheets for the capital market. So that's, I think, a really good example of how public money can be used to leverage private capital to come into some of these projects. Yes, SIF, SIF was an early player in that space, uh, uh, for sure. So I think uh, there is experience to build on. And what we need to see is institutions like the World Bank in particular, um, I would suggest placing uh, a very high uh, level of priority on increasing the leverage that they're able to attain across the World Bank, not just through IFC, but across the World Bank through various funds that they that they support um, to, to increasing the, the leverage that they're able to achieve the multiplication factor is what I mean here. You know, the, right. the, what, what, what is the World Bank putting in versus what the private sector is putting in. Right, right. right. Uh, just shifting gears a little bit, uh, looking at developing countries, they expressed some con- specific concerns about the outcomes of COP and the responsibilities of developed countries. Can you comment on sort of what the developing countries want and how we can address some of those mm-hmm. concerns? Well, I think there's two two areas which are slightly different but related. One, one is around the amount of support for um, their uh, climate action and, and adaptation in particular, as I've referenced already. So uh, while there have been new commitments to, to uh, adaptation, and Canada is one of the countries that's uh, significantly increased our commitment around support for adaptation, uh, it does, you know, it does need to be uh, increased further, and that was an, an important element of the COP decision was to to increase adaptation finance, and so there is a commitment there 
um, in the COP decision to double adaptation financing um, from a, a 2019 baseline. So, so that um, that's that's an important outcome. But I think you know they they want they want to see that come into come into to into being and and come to fruition. Um, the other area that is is around what's referred to as loss and damage, and this has been a discussion in the context of the Paris Agreement uh, for some time. But I think we saw greater focus on that in in Glasgow and in the lead up to Glasgow, and and this is the idea that uh, that the uh, um, the damage which is being experienced as a result of climate events in developing countries uh, caused by um, emissions in the atmosphere that were largely put there by developed countries, uh, that that deserves uh, some kind of recognition and, and, and potentially some kind of uh, additional support or compensation. So those, um, those kinds of discussions uh, have, um, I think they're, they've, been, they've been difficult for, for obvious reasons, but there was a commitment in Glasgow to continue that that discussion uh, under what's called the, uh, the Glasgow Dialogue on on loss and damage, and um, there were various suggestions made around funds and that sort of thing. We'll see where that where that goes, but I think it it, it relates to the first point because really what it's saying is that there needs to be more support for developing countries to adapt to climate change and you know you see i heard directly from ministers who were saying that they're having to even as highly indebted nations uh you know in the case of small island states often uh having to borrow money to rebuild schools or hospitals that are flattened by hurricanes that are more frequent now so that's um you know that's uh we're certainly hearing that uh uh, that point and Canada for its part is responding by increasing our support for adaptation and 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 as I noted uh, making that support uh, um, uh, I would expect uh, based on our specific commitment around grant financing that that the bulk of that support for adaptation will be in the form of grants on the topic of developing countries uh, we we know that COP27 will be taking place in Sharm El Sheikh in, in Egypt um, next year, and uh, that will be in Africa. and And likely there's going to be an a bit more of a lean towards developing countries uh, at that COP27. So, what do you think that we have to look forward to there? I know we'll be ratcheting up, revisiting the NDCs um, on a yearly basis. Um, we've talked about adaptation and, and loss of damage. Or should we expect to be seeing a lot of these things, these elements uh, that have come out of COP26? Will they be teased out more in COP27? Yes, uh, Rachel, I think that's right. I think those themes will be important in uh, in COP27, uh, and and the the continuing march towards. Uh, keeping that 1.5 degrees in reach and putting those commitments in place that get us there, I certainly hope will be a important part of, of COP27. I, th I think we did see in Glasgow how that's absolutely, uh, you know, there are a broad number of developing countries that are very seized with the need for uh, greater ambition on the part of, of major emitters. 
Um, so, so that uh, will be will be part of it. I'm confident of that. And beyond that, we'll, we will have to see what uh, the Egyptian uh, presidency uh, will want to work on. Uh, of course, the UK presidency does continue until uh, they, you know, they formally hand over the presidency in, in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh. But uh, I think that uh, the UK will, will want to work actively with, with Egypt uh, to ensure uh, uh, that more progress is made because it has to be made. We, we have to make more progress. That's, uh, that's clear. And finally, what... What can you say to Canadian industry and Canadian companies wanting to address climate change with, with business solutions? Is there reason for optimism? What can they look forward to post-COP? I think they can look forward to growing markets for solutions to climate change that, that, that Canadian companies uh, have on offer. And, and there are many, many Canadian companies with, with very innovative uh, climate uh, solutions in 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 both uh, mitigation adaptation certainly you know across the energy space uh, we're a, a leader in in the area of energy and and uh, so there's you know many many opportunities that I think are are really uh, uh, opening up so quickly uh, if we think about uh, you know the optimism around hydrogen markets internationally and Canada's deep uh, hydrogen sector. Uh, if we think about carbon capture use and storage, which uh, uh, so clearly needs to be part of the solution as, as a means of, of reducing emissions, both in the oil and gas sector, as well as in, in uh, industrial sectors. Um, and uh, um, so many other areas where, where um, Canadian companies are, are, are really uh, showing leadership. So I think uh, um, the, the, the uh, outcome of, of the increased ambition that we saw uh, coming in COP26 means that these markets will just accelerate and that that growth will be, will be exponential. So I think that's uh, the main message to Canadian companies is position yourself to be part of that exponential growth and uh, uh, to uh, um, to uh, um, ensure that they're uh, uh, positioning themselves to compete with what will be fierce competition, but Canada has a lot of strengths and, and uh, now is the time to uh, uh, establish market share and, and, uh, uh, um, and uh, focus on those international opportunities. That's really well said. We have a great amount of capabilities with the Canadian companies that we work with. Um, and I think we are poised to really be leaders in across the climate industry, if you will. Um, and the fact that there is hopefully more grant money and more concessional funding coming in. Um, and maybe that will translate to technical assistance money coming in, because I know that's a huge challenge for, for companies trying to work in emerging markets. Um, I personally see, you know, some a degree of optimism as to that not only will their solutions be implemented, but they'll be implemented responsibly because we'll have more of this attention around technical solutions. So um, with that, I'd like to thank you, Ambassador Fuller, for joining us um, for this. This is really insightful, and thank you so much. We don't often get a perspective of somebody who was at COP and really can tell us what Canada is doing to, to make 
the world more climate friendly. Um, and I think there are a lot of significant announcements that you shared um, uh, will resonate uh, across the world. So thank you so much for, for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for uh, listening to this uh, special edition podcast on COP26 with Ambassador Fuller. Um, and we will continue our series. Uh, hopefully, we'll have some more guests that can dig deeper into some of the um, subjects that we covered, such as SIF, such as uh, carbon trading uh, going forward. So thank you. Uh, make sure, if you have any comments, to let me know and let Rachel know um, and to rate this podcast on your platform, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. So thank you, everybody. Thank you.